going to go into our time of scripture today, this morning. And uh, today's scripture is going to be found in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be kind of uh, going through during the sermon a good portion of Genesis 29. Uh, but for the purposes of our scripture reading uh, here together, we're going to read verses 30 through 35. And so uh, that's going to be found in the ESV. Feel free to flip open to a Bible or uh, open a Bible app so you can follow along there. We will also uh, project it here, but again, it's Genesis chapter 29, and we're going to be reading right now, verses 30 through 35. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us today. Okay. So, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we are in our sermon series, uh, Firm Foundation. And um, today's message uh, is going to be partially based on uh, uh, a chapter found in this book by uh, Tim Keller. Uh, called Counterfeit Gods. It's also a book that we mentioned uh, last week. But we are talking about counterfeit gods, about idolatry. And, and we've been talking about how that's a big theme in the Old Testament. And so something that we need to understand. But of course, in modern times, uh, idols aren't something that we normally think about. Uh, we don't think we normally encounter idols. We think of idols as being kind of like graven images or you know, representations of some sort of deity or you know, god minor or major, you know, and so, so one of the things that we mentioned last week about idols is that idols do not want to be found. We all have idols. Uh, it, it may not be like the graven image variety, but they exist, uh, and they vie for our heart's affections. Um, but the thing about an idol is idols don't want to be found, and almost no one thinks that they really have one, even though we all do. And so, uh, what, the way Tim Keller talks about uh, idols is that they're not necessarily bad, uh, but they can be good things, but good things that we elevate to supreme importance, that become ultimate things. We feel like we can't live without it. And so I wanted to share with you a big idol in my life, uh, one that we're going to be uh, focusing a lot of today's message on, which for me was relationships, uh, romantic relationships in particular. And so um, I, I just, you know, as, as I talk about this idol that, that was very big in my life, um, I just thought it would be appropriate to show you a picture of what Pastor Steve used to look like. So why are you laughing? Why is, Adam's laughing a little too hard here. <laughs> so so th this is me, you know, uh, some 20 some years ago in college. And uh, the, the person that I had my arm around, um, it's not a girl. <laughs> I know I was talking about how relationships were an idol. That was just a friend. Uh, 
I just, I just covered his face because, you know, I didn't get his permission or anything and just, you know, <laughs> you can find these things on the internet. So, uh, but, you know, for me, uh, as you can see, uh, this is not a girl. I, I didn't have a girlfriend in college, but I really wanted one. And, and for me, that was a lot of my brokenness. Uh, I grew up being, um, one of the few Asian Americans at my school, uh, my elementary school definitely. Uh, and then, you know, even going into middle school and, and high school, uh, and then high school, I went to an all-guys school. <laughs> but there was always this sense in which I felt unlovable. And always a sense in which I wanted to fill that void. Um, and, and I felt like if somebody were to love me, then I would feel complete. And maybe for some of you, 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 you relate to this. Um, it, it's a common idolatry. Uh, and, and it's an idolatry that gets masked in these romantic sentiments uh, that we just think like sound like, like you know, uh, at best, you know, kind of like cute and warm and fuzzy and at worst cheesy. <laughs> but it's something we see all the time. And so, you know, uh, there might be messages, there might be uh, things that you see about romantic relationships. I'm trying to go to the next slide here. Uh, and, you know, uh, so this might be a common sentiment. Don't be with someone you can live with. Be with the person who you can't live without. Oh, it sounds good. Sounds good, right? But is this romantic? Well, maybe. But is it idolatry? Remember what we said last week about idols. Idols oftentimes are things that you feel like you can't live without, right? A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. You need it, right? Like, oh man, I need that thing. If I don't have it, then I'm not whole, right? Maybe something that you think about all the time. Isn't that sometimes how we talk about romantic relationships? There's an old Willie Nelson song that was redone by the Pet Shop Boys. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. I warn you, there's going to be a lot of songs. There might be more singing. I, I can't help myself. But this idea that that, you know, it's even in, like, that cheesy pickup line, like, girl, you tired? Legs tired? Because you've been running through my mind all day long. I'm so sorry. Not really. But the, the idea that, that I, you think about them all the time, you know, it sounds romantic, but it, 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 is it idolatrous, right? This idea that you've elevated somebody to a status that is ultimate, a status that God is supposed to have. What's the problem with that? Is there a problem with that? For me, I've definitely found out that relationship idolatry is not good. <laughs> but is that something that is shared? You know, we share that sentiment that actually it's not good if you make a person an ultimate thing. You know, wh why not? That's what today's message is going to be about. How easy it is for us to do that, but also why that's not a good thing. And then how we might be able to, if it's not a good thing, to remove that idol from our heart, even though romantic relationships, as we all know, I just want to be clear about this. They're good. They come from God. They just can't be God, right? And so, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of times in the popular media, I mean, okay, so we talked about, you know, cheesy memes or, you know, images that you might see on Instagram. Uh, but, you know, in our songs, right, that this idea, it, it's not just that somebody to you becomes uh, a, a good thing, something you want, but it becomes an ultimate thing. 
Um, so I, I just want to show you uh, lyrics from a song uh, by Savage Garden. <laughs> it's called uh, Truly, Madly, Deeply. It was very popular when I was in college. Again, I'm old, guys, so sorry. Some of the songs are going to be kind of old. Uh, but uh, this song, uh, just to show you some of the lyrics here. Try to go to the next slide. Oh, oh. Okay. Um, so it goes like this. I'll be your dream. I'll be your wish. I'll be your fantasy. I'll be your hope. I'll be your love. Be everything that you need. Ultimate thing? Huh? I love you more with every breath, truly, madly, deeply do. I will be strong. I will be faithful. Because I'm counting on a new beginning. A reason for living. A deeper meaning. Oh, can't you see it, baby? You don't have to close your eyes. Because it's standing right before you. So this is one of the things. It's like, hey, you don't have to close your eyes. You don't need to imagine this kind of love, right? I mean, even if we just kind of take it a step further with idolatry, right? You don't need to look to an invisible God. It's standing right in front of you in the flesh, right? All that you need, all that you need will surely come. I'll be your dream. I'll be your wish. I'll be your fantasy. I'll be your hope. I'll be your love. Be everything that you need. Is it too far to say that romantic relationships for us, romance, love, sex, that these things have become idols. Uh, so in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, um, he talks about this, this uh, writer, Ernest Becker, who was, uh, uh, wrote about psychology and philosophy. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974 for a book called The, Den- the Denial of Death. And I'm going to be quoting uh, pretty heavily from this book, um, but uh, I just want to take a look at something that he said about what modern life is like. And so basically, you know, we live in an age which has become increasingly secular. People live as if there is no God. Now, if there is no God, there is a void. What are you going to fill that void with? And what Ernest Becker said is that one of the things that we do in a world where we don't think there's a God is we replace it with romantic relationships. So it's something that he calls uh, the romantic solution the solution to the absence of God. So this is what he says. Modern man still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to be specially good for something truly special. Also, he still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism, onto another person in the form of a love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. Spirituality, which once referred to another dimension of things, right? A spiritual dimension, a dimension you can't see, is now brought down to this earth in given form in another individual human being. So you can see why this is appealing, like in the Savage Garden song, right? Everything you need, baby, is right in front of you. Look no further. I'm in the flesh, right? And so if we live in a world where it's hard for us to reach for an invisible God, or we don't believe in an invisible God, it's easy to take the things that are right in front of us. Those of us that are good, right, we're created in the image of God. We are not God, but we're created in God's image. And so it's almost like we look at people and we're like, you'll do. 
right? And we project on them. This is what Ernest Becker is saying. We're projecting on them what we used to project on God, right? Do you think that's true? Well, I think we do it. I think I've done that before. Um, and in the scripture today, we're going to see that this is as old as time, right? This story is not new, right? Ernest Becker was writing, um, you know, not that long ago, uh, a couple decades ago, but not that long ago. But it goes back to the beginning, right? In Genesis, we see this playing out. And we see it playing it out uh, with Jacob and with his wives, with Rachel and Leah. And Jacob, just to, to let you know, kind of following along the story we've been going through, we've been following Abraham, right? And Abraham received this promise that through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And, and of course, you may know that in patriarchal societies, that was uh, that, that, that blessing, that, that, that kind of mantle uh, of God watching over these people, it was carried through the first son. And so Abraham had his son Isaac. But then what happens after Isaac is something interesting. There's a prophecy that the older will serve the younger. And Isaac actually has twins, Jacob and Esau, who were born almost at the same time, but Esau is actually born first. But remember, the prophecy is the older will serve the younger, right? And, and we're going to talk more about Jacob and Esau next week. But just know that Jacob in this patriarchal society, should not have been the one to bear the blessing of the first son. And, and, and even though there's this prophecy, Isaac in his heart loved Esau more than Jacob. Right? And he wanted to give his blessing to Esau. But Jacob kind of like steals it. Yoink! You know, there's a whole story where he like, uh, uh, Isaac's eyes are getting old and Jacob pretends to have hairy arms because Esau had hairy arms and and, and so basically, he steals his blessing. Esau gets so mad about this that he wants to kill him. And so Jacob's on the run, right? Now he's got a broken relationship with his brother, right? His dad never loved him the way that he loved his older brother. And then, so, so uh, Jacob is fleeing, and he goes to his kinsman. He goes to this guy, Laban. And when he goes there, uh, you know, he's got to make himself useful. He's going to stay there for a while, uh, perhaps. And he starts working. And, and Laban is like, dude, this guy, Jacob, man, he's a hard worker. And, and so, you know, Laban's like, hey, Jacob, I really appreciate all that you're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, we pick it up here, uh, verse 15. Mm. Try to go to the next slide. Okay. Uh, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Uh, so Laban had two daughters, right? And Jacob, when he looked at the daughters, he knew. He knew what his price would be. It was obvious. And we are told these things about his daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, it doesn't say Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel had 20-20 vision, right? It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was stunningly beautiful. Beautiful in form and appearance. So Leah's eyes being weak is a euphemism in some ways for her being ugly. Some scholars think that maybe the reference to her eyes being weak meant that she had like a lazy eye or she was cross-eyed or something like that. 
And so Jacob looks at the two daughters and he's like, Leah, no, but Rachel, he is smitten. And so he, it says in the scripture, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he says to Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And uh, so Laban kind of like very craftily, he says yes, but not really yes. He's like, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So this is going to be important. He doesn't really say yes, but Jacob just wants to hear yes. Right? Do you ever hear like, you know, hey, get it in writing, you know? And Jacob does not get it in writing because he, he just wants to hear yes, right? And, and what, what Old Testament scholars say is that um, the normal price for a bride in that time, like the kind of service you would give in exchange for a bride, that, that would have been, you know, a fairly common practice back then. But seven years was excessive. Jacob overpaid, but he gladly did it because that's not how much he wanted Rachel. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And you'll get this if you've ever been in love. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Right? Sounds romantic. Could be slightly idolatrous, but it, it sounds romantic. This idea like, oh man, you know, just because I love her so much, just those days fly by. I'll pay any price. I'll, I'll, I'll go to any length to have you. Right? And so... Then Jacob, after serving these seven years, he says to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, I don't think it takes like a biblical scholar to know what Jacob means by give me my wife that I may go into her. I mean, guys, just to be blunt, he's saying, give me my wife that I can have sex with her, right? Uh, Sometimes, you know, the, the Bible will have these euphemisms, lay with her, you know? But this is a bold thing to say. Again, Old Testament scholars are like, you would not talk to your father-in-law this way, right? But it's like Jacob doesn't care. He just wants Rachel, right? He wants to possess her, to have her. And so they have a great feast. They're going to have this wedding. But in the evening, uh, Laban takes his daughter Leah instead of Rachel, right? Leah the one with the weak eyes, instead of Rachel, the one that Jacob loves. And Leah goes to her, and, and that in, in the, and so basically, um, you know, she would have been veiled, you know, during the feast, you know, they, there would have been a lot of drinking. And so probably, you know, Jacob just didn't notice, right? Because he was very, you know, uh, compromised. And so in the morning after he sleeps with Leah, he, it says, and in the morning, Behold, it was Leah, right? Like there's this, this plot twist. It's like a Korean drama or, you know, like, like some, some sort of, you know, telenovela kind of thing. Like, oh my gosh, it's the wrong sister. And he goes to Laban as any of us would and be like, what have you done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban says, oh, well, this is not done in our country. I can't give you the younger before the firstborn. Right? So complete the week of this one, you know, so, so your obligation is to be married for one week, and then I'll give you the other one too, in exchange for seven more years. Man, that Laban, right? Totally tricks J- Jacob, but Jacob in some ways was an easy mark, right? Because 
he was compromised. Not just by the wine, but he was compromised by love, or what he thought was love, by this extreme infatuation with Rachel. He just wanted it more than anything else. And so he's like, okay, fine. And he serves seven more years, right? Just so he can have Rachel. That's how much he wants her. What's going on here, friends? Remember what we know about Jacob. Jacob, in this society, right, as you can imagine, probably wanted to make his dad proud. His dad never really loved him. Not the way he loved Esau. To get his father's blessing. He had to trick his father into thinking that he was Esau. And now he's on the run. And now his relationship is broken. He's looking for something. We're, we're, we're going to look next week. You're going to find Jacob ain't satisfied, even when he gets Rachel. It's never enough. It's never enough. This is the way it is with idols, right? We have this saying like uh, that our hearts are restless. Uh, this is a quote from Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. And oftentimes what we try to do, it's almost like, uh, you ever see like a puzzle where there's like a piece missing? And sometimes you'll find a piece that kind of looks like it. And if you try really hard, you can kind of jam it in there. But you'll tell that, that it doesn't quite fit all the way. And you're going to do damage trying to jam it in there. And that's what happens with human relationships. And the void never gets fully filled. Sometimes that piece will start to slip out. And you see that with Jacob. He is still restless. He is still wrestling. Even though he gets, on paper, everything he wants, it doesn't fully satisfy. And you see this in another person in this story. Um, more tragically, perhaps, uh, uh, the, the most tragic person in this story is Leah. Leah, who is unloved. Now, check this out. Not only, not only does she have this, this sister who's like stunningly beautiful, and, and in the eyes of other people, she's not seen that way. But her dad has to trick a man into marrying her, because he knows too. Right? I mean, if you were Leah, how would that make you feel? And then, you know, so, so she, 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 has sex with her husband and thinking like, okay, well, hey, maybe he'll love me. He seemed to love me last night. And then next morning, he's like so angry, right? The moment he looks at her. It's not, it's not the way you picture the, the day after your wedding. Waking up and your husband is like, what the heck? Who are you? I didn't want you. I wanted your sister. Ooh, oh my gosh. What's that do to her person? And then, after seven days, he marries the sister that he loved. And so, we're told that, that Leah, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, that this, this, this uh, account. You see that Jacob went into Leah, Rachel also. So now, he, he goes to be with Rachel, because that's who he wants to be with, right? And then... Um, uh, Sorry, if we can go to the... Are we in the right one? Eh, next, okay. Uh, 
And he loved Rachel more than Leah, if that wasn't obvious, right? But the scripture tells us that. And, and, and so then when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, not just that, that Jacob didn't just love Rachel more, he hated Leah. He resented Leah, right? And, and so he, uh, God, uh, in, in his grace, opens up her room, uh, but Rachel was barren. Rachel was not able to have kids yet. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Oh my gosh, it's so heartbreaking, right? And then she says, she, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. The first son that she had, she's like, okay, now my husband will love me because now I'm the mother of his son, right? Doesn't happen. Still loves Rachel. Still wants to be with Rachel. So then she has a second son. She's like, okay, this time. This time he's going to love me. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So two sons didn't do it. Jacob still loves Rachel. But now I have three sons. Come on. Come on. What do you got to do? What do you got to do? But still, Jacob did not love Leah. It's heartbreaking. And a final time, she conceives yet again, bears another son, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. It's a heartbreaking story, right? But there's something different about the last son. Do you notice? There's no mention of the husband. There's no mention of, this, of, of you know, now that I had the son, you're going to love me. Now it's just this time, I will praise the Lord. It's almost as if Leah is starting to awaken to the fact that it doesn't matter how many sons that she'll have. And even it doesn't matter if her husband loves her. It's never going to be enough. And it will never take the place of God. And so with the final son, she's like, you know, now instead of having a son for my husband to get something that I desperately want, now, God, this one is all yours. This one is all yours, completely given, right? And Judah is going to be very important in the Bible. He's the one. He's the one. And, and we're, we're going to find out in a moment why that's so important. But brothers and sisters, you see the, the, this, this heartbreaking, uh, uh, just, just, you know, heart-wrenching journey for both Jacob and Leah to find something in another person that they can never give, right? I, I want to go back to um, why we do that and why this is dangerous. And so we're going to go back to Ernest Becker. And, and so, you know, you're going to see something here. Um, again, we're going to go back to some songs. <laughs> sorry, sorry I, just, I just like looking at love songs because they are such a window into our romantic idolatry. And Ernest Becker even says that. He says, 
in case we are inclined to forget how deified the romantic love object is, how we make it like a god, the popular songs continually remind us. They tell us that the lover is the springtime, the angel glow, with eyes like stars. Uh, he wrote this in 1974, so I don't know these songs, but <laughs> that the experience of love will be divine like heaven itself, and so on. Popular love songs have surely had this content from ancient times and will likely continue to have it. This is not new. These songs reflect the hunger for real experience, a serious emotional yearning on the part of the creature, creatures like Jacob and Leah and Pastor Steve and you, all of us. We have this yearning. Why? The point is that if the love object is divine perfection, then one's own self is elevated by joining one's destiny to it. One has the highest measure for one's ideal, striving. All of one's inner conflicts and contradictions, the many aspects of guilt, all these one can try to purge in a perfect consummation with perfection itself. Modern man fulfills his urge to self-expansion in the love, love object just as it was once fulfilled in God. In one word, the love object is God. That's idolatry, right? <laughs> so hopefully you see that. But even more than that, what, what Ernest Becker is pointing out is very interesting. He says the reason why you make that, that romantic partner, that object of your affection, God, is because you want to be God too. You want for this person to be perfection so you can join perfection. It is our greatest longing, right? And, and so, you know, if, if this wasn't clear, uh, I, I want to point out that this is another uh, uh, love song. This is from the early 2000s, I think. Um, but I just wanted to read these lyrics. So it says, I guess you were lost when I met you, but still there were tears in your eyes. So out of trust, and I knew, no more than mysteries and lies. There you were, wild and free, reaching out like you needed me. You can tell this is a song. The helping hand to make it right. I am holding you all through the night. I'll be the one. I'll be the one who will make all your sorrows undone. I'll be the light. I'll be the light when you feel like there's nowhere to run. Guys, plot twist. This is Jesus. Just kidding. It's not Jesus. This was written by the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> this is a Backstreet Boys song, right? But yo, check it out, right? I'll be the one who will make all your sorrows undone. I'll be the light. Yo, you ain't light. I mean, you guys have bright costumes on, but you ain't the light, right? And, and so, brothers and sisters, you know, maybe you're like, okay, Pastor Steve, you're, you're like getting carried away because these are really old songs. Nobody talks like this anymore. We're not trying to replace this void. Brothers and sisters, remember. I mean, do you think we live in a world that is increasingly more God-filled? Where people know God and seek God? Or are we living in a world that is increasingly secular? Where we feel like we're living without God? So in some ways, I would argue, I think it's getting worse. And so I want to show you a, a, a modern love song. So you're like, okay, Pastor Steve, maybe something in the century. <laughs> but this is a song, it's a little more subtle. It's not as, you know, kind of cheesy, you know. I'll be the, I'll be the one. Sorry, that's from Backstreet Boys. But uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a modern song. This is very popular just a couple years ago. Um, Tell me something, boy. 
Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? I'm off, oh, uh, sorry, there, there's uh, another lyric, but uh, sorry, I am on the second one. Uh, but yeah, let's do this one first. Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? I'm off the deep end, watch me as I dive in. I'll never meet the ground. Crash through the surface where they can't hurt us. We're far from the shallow now. In the shallow. In the sh- uh. So, but guys, behind like just a catchy hook, I know we, we hear these songs and, and you just hear the catchy melody, right? And the beautiful Lady Gaga sings this is really, really beautiful song, right? But tell me something, boy, aren't you trying to fill that void? What void? The void we all have. This isn't a Christian song, guys, right? But we know that. We know we all have a void. Or do you need more, right? Uh, so the, the, the first lyric, which um, I, I accidentally skipped in my notes here. Can we go back? Okay. Um, tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? I'm falling. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. And in the bad times, I fear myself. Now, brothers and sisters, in, in this song, it's talking about two people who are empty, who are searching, longing. They have a void within them. And what do they end up doing? They find Jesus. No. <laughs> they try to fill that void in each other. But one of the things in this lyric is, is pointing to the fact, right? In, the, in all the good times, I find myself longing for change. And in the bad times, I fear myself. Because you find, at least in the context of the story, the two people that they're talking about, this is from The Star is Born, A Star is Born, um, with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Both of the characters are very flawed and broken. So what happens when flawed and broken people try to get that person to fill the void? So I want to go to Ernest Becker again uh, to see what he has to say. He says, after all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position, position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. Does it need to be said? Right? Rachel could never do that for Jacob. And Jacob could never do that for Leah. I mean, you look at Jacob, he's, he's got a lot of issues, right? He's a messed up dude. And, 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 but, but that doesn't stop Leah from, from searching, from trying. Maybe this time my husband will love me. Maybe this time I will be fulfilled. And it's something she's got to let go of, right? I, I want to show you, uh, uh, this is the, the last uh, bit from the Ernest Becker book, but I, I want you to stick with this for a second. I want you to look at why this is a problem. Um, it's a problem even for the relationship itself. How can a human being be a God like everything to another? No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. And the attempt has to take its toll in some way on both parties. When we look for the perfect 
human object, we are looking for someone who allows us to express our will completely without any frustration or false notes. Can you think, think about like that with God, right? Like you can confess anything, right? He will love you unconditionally. That's what we want. We want unconditional love. Somebody that we can be ourselves and they will love us perfectly, right? But if you have an imperfect person looking for a perfect person and an imperfect person looking back at that imperfect person to be perfect, you're gonna have problems. That's what Ernest Becker is saying, right? He says, we want an object that reflects a truly ideal image of ourselves, but no human object can do this. Humans have wills and counterwills of their own. In a thousand ways, they can move against us. Their very appetites offend us. When you see how human they are, you're like, oh, what the heck? Oh, you're so needy, right? God's greatness and power is something that we can nourish ourselves in without its being compromised in any way by the happenings of this world. No human partner can offer this assurance. However, however much we may idealize and idolize him, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. This is the human partner. And he is our ideal measure of value. This imperfection falls back on us. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. So this is something you see. I want to talk to the married people too, because you know this. You know this. You may idealize that person. You got those rose-colored goggles, right? And you're like, oh man, this person's wonderful. This is it. I'm going to be fulfilled. But the more you're in relationship, you start seeing cracks. You start seeing faults, right? And how many times, how many times do we think to ourselves, Man, this would be perfect. If only, if only what? It's just, just, just one thing. Just, just one thing about this person. If I could just change that one thing, then it would be perfect. If they were more affectionate. If, if they listened to me a little bit better. If they didn't watch so much TV instead of wanting to spend time with me. Right? Does this sound familiar? What are we doing in that search? The one thing, the one thing is our search for perfection, our search for God. And so often when we don't find that, we start fantasizing about something else. It breaks our relationship, right? I mean, on one level, just, just like seriously, just be objective. Take out the romance from it and just, just be objective about it. What did you expect when you married this person? Did you expect them to be perfect? Like, honestly, there's no way. No human is perfect. You are going to find flaws. You are going to find things that disturb you, that things that that you don't necessarily like, things that you would want. But at the end of the day, human relationships cannot bear the burden, as Ernest Becker says, of godhood. It's impossible. You will crush the other person, and you also will be brokenhearted and disappointed, just like Leah, just like Jacob, and you will go searching elsewhere. Right? I mean, brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying in any of this that human relationships aren't a gift, that they aren't a blessing, right? I mean, I'm married. I have kids. They're wonderful, right? And, and I hope they know this, and I hope they're not offended, but I mean, they're not perfect, right? Nor am I. I am way more imperfect than them. Let me tell you, right? They are saints to put up with me. But this is the deal, right? If in, within you, 
is that missing puzzle piece. And you have that deep longing, right? You're in this world searching for more, looking for deep things that will fill. And you go to the relationship to try to find that, and it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy. You will never be able to love those people as they are because you're going to keep wanting them to be God, right? And, and there's just going to be a brokenness that's always there. Now, if you can get that puzzle piece filled by God, have deep satisfaction in God, then no longer does your love partner or your children or any relationship need to be God to you. Does that make sense? Right? And so when you stop looking for that, when you start actually, instead of like, man, I wish they were this way, but it becomes more, how can I love this person more? How can I pray for them? How can I be better for them? Instead of, oh, you got to do this for me to fill some kind of void that I want to see. Right? Brothers and sisters, then we can have the kind of love that is, is uh, again, it's not perfect, and the relationship isn't perfect, but it can be God-centered. It can be something that doesn't have to bear the burden of Godhood. Let God be God, and let us be human. Right? And, and, and of course, within that, we can do a lot of forgiving. You're going to have to do a lot of forgiving. Right? But what if we do have uh, uh, an idolatrous relationship. What do we do about that? Well, brothers and sisters, I, I want us to know that even in our imperfection, God can use you. God want, wants to work with you. Yes, there is a way in which I hope you, like Leah, can start to have that idol removed from your heart. But I want to be very clear about this. Leah doesn't necessarily get it. <laughs> Not fully. I mean, she has this insight, but she's just like us. I would like to say, this is a neat little story, right? Right? Where Leah, like with the final son, she's like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. God, now you are everything. So in the next chapter, you're going to find like Rachel starts getting really jealous. And so she gives her handmaiden so that uh, Jacob can start having kids. And then eventually, uh, Rachel has her own kids. And then Leah's like, okay, handmaiden, <laughs> go, 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 to, go to Jacob. And she starts having this competition with Rachel. So don't get me wrong. Leah is not the hero of the story. Not fully. She's human. She's flawed like all of us. Right? But what you see in Leah, in being able to at least surrender Judah, say, this isn't for my husband. This isn't for anyone, but for God. You know what God does with Judah? He blesses all of us. Where is the blessing coming from? Jacob, right? But Jacob has 12 sons. And there is one son from which, by the way, you know, after a while, we don't call them Israelites anymore. Right? I, I, I hope, you know, I'm just trying to be funny. I hope this isn't offensive. We don't call them Izzies, right? We, we, they're the Jewish people. Why? Because they come from the tribe of Judah, right? Judaism is the religion of the people of Judah. It's the one tribe. It's the one tribe that makes it. And Jesus comes from this lineage. Jesus, who in many ways is the son of Leah. Remember what, what we know about Leah. Leah was not thought of as beautiful. This is what it says in the prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. 
and no beauty that we should desire him. Right? Remember that Leah was rejected by her own, rejected by her own father, he, and rejected by her own husband. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is what we hear about Jesus from the very beginning in John chapter 1. Right? Jesus, uh, 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 Leah is spurned, hated, turned away by her husband. And, and Jesus, we're told um, that even on the cross, his own father, as Leah's father spurned her, his own father turned away. That, that on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What God has done, he has taken the son of Leah, not directly, but through that lineage, and one like Leah, who is not loved, not accepted, that he was born in a manger. And yet, God decided to redeem all of humanity, all of us, through this one that we spurned and rejected. I want to end with one more song. And, and I don't have the lyrics here, but you can just listen. It's, it's a song by, um, well, it's a praise song called Above All. And it says, Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. That is who Jesus should be. He should be above everything, worthy of all our praise, worthy of all our adoration, and yet crucified, laid behind the stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Jesus took the fall. Jesus became rejected and unloved, trampled on the ground, but thought of us above all. Brothers and sisters, there's a beautiful symmetry to this. From Leah the unloved comes the unloved one who loves us all. And it is only by his love that we can be truly satisfied. It's the only solution. It is the only thing that will fill that void in your life. Coming to know Jesus, coming to seek Jesus, making that thing that we love most of all. And, and brothers and sisters, I, I think there are times where we can hear the gospel story and it's just, yeah, 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 we heard that before. But to let it to pierce your heart again. Because I think for Leah, and for Jacob, there's these insecurities. Because we also, brothers and sisters, we know what other people are looking for. we got to be good enough to be loved, right? Because if I'm looking for someone who's godlike, then so are other people. So I better be good. I better be beautiful. I better be qualified. I better be accomplished. I better be rich. I better be successful. Or they won't love me. But Jesus who's not loved by this world, loves us. And his love is the love of God. 
Not because we're beautiful. Not because we're worthy. But because he's worthy. That's it. All we got to do is fall into that. Accept that. Just let that wash over you. You are loved. Praise team, can you guys come up? It is the love you've been searching for. It is the love that can fulfill everything. Jesus is the one. There, was, there is no one like him. Backstreet Boys don't got anything on him. Bradley Cooper don't got anything on Jesus. He is the one you are looking for. But do we know that? Do we feel that? Do we have deep satisfaction in knowing Christ? Even if you've known this before, maybe it's just started to slip. You know, maybe in the times that we're going through, we, we've tried to build our, our, our foundations on a different kind of cornerstone. Not on God's love and acceptance of us, but on other things. And so let's just take a moment to just both bask in, in the love of God. Brothers and sisters, to know that who you are at your core is you are beloved of God. Even before you are the person who performs. That this world may say you are not worthy of love because of X, Y, Z. But you are only worthy of love because of what Christ has done for you. And it is enough. Oh God, I pray that this truth can sink into us. God, we repent of the ways that we have looked for perfection, for perfect love, and for an object for us to become merged to, to fulfill us, God. We've looked for it in imperfect things. But God, we know this truth, and we want this truth to ring true in our bones, in our soul, in every fiber of our being, to know that truly there is no one like you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.